Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We are on commandment number eight of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. And uh, I want to ask you a question. If, if you were to make Ten Commandments for your household, what would go on the list? Like, if you've got children, do you find yourself saying, don't do this, stop that, change that, this isn't right, do something different, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe you're married, and this is what you say to your spouse, right? Maybe you live with your parents, and they're just, like, always correcting you. Like, if you could look at your mom and dad and say, mom and dad, if you had 10 commandments for our home, here's what they would, here's what they would be. So I want to share with you, it's very simple. Here's three easy steps to find 10 commandments for your home. Here's the first, identify the 10 things that are the most important to you. Make a list, 10 things that are the most important to you. And that's, that's going to be the hardest part, but the, but the next one's a little easier. Then what I want you to do is I want you to identify the greatest threat to that value. Once you have the threat, you add the words, thou shalt not, and you have the beginning of your Ten Commandments. I'll share with you a personal example. Uh, in our home, we don't have Ten Commandments, although I'm beginning to think we should probably make them, but I've, heard, uh, I've shared with you multiple times that there is a value in our home, and here's the value. Fuelings, that's my last name, fueling, fuelings do hard things even when others won't. Like this is a value. My kids regularly, we have discussions. Why do we have to do this? And I say, fuelings do hard things even when others won't. So we run into chaos when other people run away. We will have the conversations that you don't want to have. We do, we do what is right despite the cost. If you're gonna bear my name, this is one of the names that comes with being a fueling. And so one of the greatest threats Two of the greatest threats to this value are fear and laziness. And so if I were to make a commandment, here's what my commandment would be. Thou shalt not let fear or laziness determine your decisions. Can someone give me an amen on that one? Like that is, that is like words to live by right there, right? If you could take this value and instill it into the heart of your children and grandchildren, we do not let fear or laziness determine our decisions. We do what is right, even if it is incredibly Difficult. So let's take this formula and let's see what we've learned so far about what God values positively through the first seven commandments. So the first four commandments are actually all really going after the same fundamental value. No other gods, no idols. Don't take God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. And so here's the value that God is upholding so far through numbers one through four. God values a personal, committed relationship with every one of you. Like this is of utmost importance to God, that not just corporately, generally, but individually, every person has a committed and personal relationship with God, functionally, spiritually married to him in a covenant for life. So God legislates that and says, here are the greatest threats, no other gods, no idols. You may not take my name in vain or use it in a way that I can't be accessed. And you have to keep the Sabbath. You need to take a day of the week and it's our day. I want a personal relationship with each and every one of you. Here's commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. So here's the positive value that comes out of that. Here's what God's trying to uphold. We see that God values the home as the foundation of a healthy society. Commandment number six, don't kill. We see that God values all human life as uniquely sacred in all of living creation. In fact, the, the Torah or the law or the first five books expound on what this looks like, and it's everybody in the womb 
all the way until right before they're dead. If you're alive, if you have a heartbeat, if you're even alive at all, you have value as made in the image of God. Number seven, don't commit adultery. We see that God values marriage as the most important human institution. It's so important to God. It's in his top 10 value list and he legislates anything that threatens that. Here's number eight, you shall not steal. So here's what I wanna do this morning. First, I wanna talk to you about what this meant for the Israelites. Uh, Second, I wanna talk about uh, what we learn about God's positive value because there's actually something really unique and I think surprising that will make sense of even the American experiment as we understand this unique value behind this law. And third, we're gonna share with you some so what. So question number one, what did this mean for the Israelites. Well, thankfully, stealing didn't mean something different for them than it does for us. So here's a basic definition of stealing. Make sure we're all on the same page. Stealing is taking what is not yours. If you take something and it's not yours and you don't have permission to do it, what's that called? Stealing, period. So it's not as if, by the way, this is the first time the Israelites have ever heard this. So while the Israelites were in Egypt, they had what was called oral tradition. Oral tradition would eventually become the Torah or the, or the book of Genesis and parts of Exodus. And, and what would happen is they hadn't written down the book of Genesis yet. It existed as oral tradition. And then who was the person who would take the stories of the book of Genesis and write them down for the first time? His name was Good job, Moses. So Moses is penning the first five books in the book of Deuteronomy. For them at the time was their oral tradition. Now here's the great thing about the book of Genesis. It's almost all narrative. An Old Testament narrative rarely is gonna tell you what is right or wrong. What Old Testament narrative is gonna do is that it's going to show you what is right or wrong. So if something is good, what you'll find is that behaviors eventually will have positive consequences. And if a behavior is bad or forbidden by God, what you'll see is that rarely will the text identify it as bad. It will show you that it's bad because when somebody does a bad thing, what inevitably happens in the story? Things go bad for them. So let me give you just two simple examples. Uh, polygamy. Anytime another woman, or in the Old Testament is always women, there was another woman added to the marriage, right? Did it ever go well? Not once. Every time a marriage becomes more than a man and a woman and you add another woman into the scenario, things go bad pretty quickly. And what is the lesson that the Old Testament narrative is trying to communicate? Polygamy is not good. In fact, in Deuteronomy, um, God actually had to legislate specifically for the kings, setting an example for the entire nation, that the kings were not allowed to have a multiplicity of wives. Why? Because every time there was a multiplicity of wives, things went really, really bad. Now we have stealing. Every time that you have stealing, what happens? Really bad things. Let me give you an example. Go back to the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are told, you can have anything you want, but this one tree, this one fruit, you cannot eat it. What did they do? They ate it. How did it go for them? Not well. Now, here's just a little question for you. If somebody owns something and they look at you and they say, you cannot eat it or have it, it's mine, and you take it, what's that called? Stealing. Jacob, he steals his brother Esau's birthright and his blessing. How did that go for him? Not well. In fact, it culminated in a almost lifelong feud where both of them almost died because of their conflict. What's, what's the lesson? 
stealing is not good. And these stories were told in the Jewish oral tradition and they were very familiar with it. Now, the Old Testament law is gonna actually expound on this. So I wanna ask you to do something for me. I wanna ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter six. The book of Leviticus chapter six. It's actually one of the most helpful sections on stealing in Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law forbids a handful of specific things. We're gonna start with Leviticus and it forbids taking someone else's money. Now, I want to read to you Leviticus 6, 1 through 3, and then we're going to draw out from Leviticus 6. Actually, there's a few specific forms of taking money that are found here. Leviticus 6, verse 1 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against thee, by the way, who is it against first? The Lord. So whatever you do, by the way, in terms of theft between you and another person, In God's eyes, this is first and foremost a violation, a personal violation in your relationship with God. Here here are the different ways that theft could happen. Number one, by deceiving his neighbor in a manner of deposit or security, this would be what's called embezzlement. This is some sort of deception and moving money around. Or we have uh, next through robbery. This is where you break in or you take something that is not yours, especially in a spirit of deception or force. You have this, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, this is extortion through force, usually. We have verse three, it says, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely. Isn't that interesting that if you found a $10 bill and you knew knew whose money it was and you lied about it, that would be under old covenant law, stealing. And doesn't that kind of resonate with your heart? Like if you found someone else's money and you lied about it and kept it for yourself, doesn't that kind of just resonate as theft in your heart? Don't you know that? Like you intuitively know these things, but I love how how God's like, you know what? The human heart is really deceptive. And you're gonna find a reason why when you find that $100 bill that that person dropped in front of you, why it is completely justified for you to take it. And the Old Testament law is just God's so gracious to say, listen, I know all the ways that your crooked little hearts are gonna try to like manipulate this and get around this, but is it really really stealing. And so God actually has to legislate some pretty intense details here. I want want to move on from this text and I want to show you a couple other examples in law. Uh, We have human trafficking or kidnapping. Anytime somebody steals another person, this is considered theft. In fact, this is the only version of stealing that will get you the death penalty. Of all the versions of stealing, this is the most egregious to God. We have withholding payment from somebody when you owe them money and you don't give them money, that is considered under old covenant law, stealing. You have dishonesty in weights and measures. So if somebody thinks they're buying a pound of something, but your measurement is off on purpose and they haven't bought what they thought they purchased, that would be deception. Giving loans at interest is considered theft or stealing under old covenant law. Now, I want to just throw out a little fun thing for you to debate in your community groups or men's groups or women's groups or with your friends or family at lunch. Um, there's a little bit of debate on what this actually means now because in, in Israel, this was not a culture that had high or inflation rates or inflation at all. It was very, we'll just say, level and normal. Um, and so some people would say now in American culture, if you're going to borrow, you should borrow at the interest of inflation because that would be identical to what was happening here. I don't really know what I think of that actually because it's a pretty complex issue, but in America, some of these things as we apply them into our context become a little bit more challenging. I think by and large, the safest way to go is if you're going to lend somebody money, 
Don't charge them interest. So that's the biblical principle, but it gets sticky when you start talking about large amounts of money over periods of time and how to really uphold the spirit of this law in a new covenant context. What do all these, by the way, have in common? Greed. It is this desire to elevate your place in life, your possessions, your standard of living at the expense of someone else. It's actually rebellion against God to say, what you have given me or what through hard work I have accumulated for myself in your will and your way, God is not good enough. I am now going to take from someone else and I'm gonna use it for myself. When I was 16 years old, um, there was an album that I really wanted. Now, I had the money for the album. I want to be clear. It was Led Zeppelin number four. And I was learning to play in the guitar, Black Dog. And this is before you could really get MP3s or anything of the sorts. And so I needed the CD. And I had a thought in my brain. One of my enemies, his name is Clark, And I was in Clark's car a week prior, and Clark in his glove compartment box had Led Zeppelin 4. And I'd asked Clark, I said, Clark, do you like the album? And he said, I hate the album. And I said, oh, hmm. And in my brain, I was like, I need the album. And I was sitting there, and I was going to go out with some friends, and we were going to go eat at Big Boy. Anybody remember Big Boy? (laughs) Love Big Boy. The strawberry uh, pie is perfect. Anyways. So I thought to myself, I can either go to Clark's car, which is unlocked in front of his driveway, and go get the album and spend $20 on myself at Big Boy, or I can spend $20 on myself at Big Boy and pay also another $20 for the album. So you know what I did? I drove up to Clark's car at night, opened his door, opened up his glove compartment box, and here's what I told myself. He doesn't like it anyways. He's not going to listen to it anyways. I don't like him. He burned one of my friends, treated them utterly terribly. He deserves it. Took the album, learned Black Dog, learned Stairway to Heaven, learned Battle of Evermore, learned them all, loved it. I was feeling good. And I'm telling you, I don't know, it was probably because my brain hadn't developed yet. There was almost no conviction whatsoever in my heart. Isn't that weird? And here, here's what I wanted. Just greedy. I wanted to have more. I wanted to spend more on myself. That was it. There's nothing redeemable. There is no excuse. But it's amazing when greed takes over our brain, it like washes common sense out from us. Have you ever stolen something? My guess, here's my guess. Because you hear me say this all the time, um, I, I do not believe when the word of God is open and the people of God are together, that the spirit of God is ever twiddling his thumbs and bored and he's like, oh, I don't know, I'm not gonna move because he wasn't very interesting today. The spirit of God is at work and my hunch is that the vast majority of us in this room have taken something that is not ours without permission, whether illegally or personally, and we know in the spirit of God is provoking you right now. I'm just going to let that linger, and then as we go on, we'll let the Spirit do whatever he wants to do. So in this new nation, you, you could not control the home you grew up in. But God was doing something really, really amazing through the creation of this new, this new nation and these new laws. He was actually creating a nation where you didn't need to steal because God actually would weave into this nation's infrastructure 
the opportunity to move up in life and to get actually maybe what you wanted. So this brings us to the second question I want to answer, which is what positive value is Yahweh communicating here? So I need you to catch this because this is going to probably make sense of why the founders of America did what they did because they're taking cues, by the way, from how God established and built the values with which he built the nation of Israel. And so God here is establishing a nation in Israel with freedom such that no nation had ever seen before in history. In fact, what God is doing simply through the establishment of the Ten Commandments is building a whole framework that any nation who builds themselves off of this framework statistically throughout history will be more successful in creating joy, happiness, and freedom. And this singular law, it would actually become one of the most important in human history, not because of what it forbade, but because, because of what it upheld. So let me just give you some like overview of how this new nation would work. In God's new nation, small governments ran affairs locally with no king. In fact, the kings did not come until the people rebelled and said, we want a king like the other nations. So this was to be run by small governments locally. Faith in God, worship of the one true God was central. Family was a top priority. Personal freedom was mandated by law in Israel. Taxes were regulated, minimal, and transparent. I mean, this is a very different economic structural system than the world had historically ever seen. And I want you to catch one of the most important parts of this that would set this nation apart from almost any other nation. I want you to catch this. People owned property personally, and nobody could take it away from them. Like, this is a new concept. You know this thing that you have, which is like the freedom to own personal property? It is a gift to human civilization, primarily through the Old Testament law, the nation of Israel, and its impact on the globe. Now, there were certain people in certain nations who could own property, but this is actually very interesting because what the law actually protected is personal ownership of property for all people, for everybody who lived in the borders of this nation. Somebody more powerful could not oppress you and take away what is yours. It was illegal. So in this new nation, I want you to catch this, no matter who you were, no matter what family you were born into, no matter what town you grew up in, anybody in the nation of Israel could move up. And they could move up through hard work, which would be rewarded in this nation with greater levels of prosperity. Laziness in this new nation would keep people broke. Taxes would be reasonable. And I want you to catch this. The poor would never, ever be hungry unnecessarily in this nation. In fact, they were required by law on their fields to leave the edges of it unharvested so that a sojourner, a foreigner, or somebody who is poor always, always had access to food. It did not have to go through the undignified process of begging. When God's nation functioned well, this really did sustain and uphold the dignity of all people, no matter who they were, where they were coming from, where they were going, what lot they had in life, what catastrophes might have befallen them. Let's just remember where they came from, by the way, so you can see just the stark contrast of the laws and the the culture of this new nation, where they were going versus where they came from. So in Egypt, hard work didn't get you out of slavery. 
Why work hard? Because I, I never got out of my current lot. In fact, the harder I worked, the harder they abused me and the higher their standards were for me. In Egypt, the rich abused and oppressed the poor. Seemingly, if you were rich, you could get richer, but the poor could never get out of poverty. In fact, the poor were kept in these functional caste systems in Egypt. In Egypt, corruption was found at the highest levels and the lowest levels. You got up through corruption, theft, and bribery. You've all seen around the world when you visit other countries, nations that have a fundamental level of corruption, there is bribery from the top to the bottom and everywhere in between, and it is almost impossible to build a healthy nation with this level of corruption. In Egypt, the poor stayed poor, and I want you to catch this, unless they stole their way ahead. That was it. Theft, when you're poor in Egypt, was the only way that you could possibly get ahead. So here's the positive value. I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And this singular verse identifies the positive value that God is creating in this nation. And I love that it's reiterated for us in the New Testament and it's given such clarity. If you want to know what is so important to God, Ephesians 4, 28 tells you this is the value that God is upholding through do not steal. Ephesians 24, 4, 28. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather, what is the opposite? What is the thing that we're supposed to do? What is the value that God is trying to uphold? Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. God values four things for Israel and the church. These are the positive things that God is trying to sustain and create uh, for the entire nation, for every individual in Israel. And now we see this for any follower of Jesus Christ. Number one is hard work. Followers of Jesus, people who bear the name of Yahweh, we work hard. The opposite of this is laziness or, or theft or greed or stealing. We don't, we don't do that stuff. We are hard workers. Let it be said of us, from our supervisors or our boss, or if we are the owners and managers that those who work under us, that we have a work ethic that brings God glory, that nobody would look at us and say that we are lazy or that we cut corners or that we are greedy, but let it be said of us that we work hard as unto the Lord. Here's another value. Honest ownership that God actually does want his people to own stuff, that it is good and biblical and right for people to own property and things and to actually have money in your bank account, which brings us actually to the next one, which is there is a high value that you work and you save and you live in such a way that you have excess with a spirit of contentment. That somehow when the farmers in Israel would farm their lands, they would farm enough for today they would farm enough for tomorrow. And then they would farm enough, which brings us to the fourth one, for generosity. So that not only did I have enough for today, and not only do I have enough for tomorrow, but I actually have enough to meet the tangible needs of those who are around me so that I can allow them to live with dignity, so that I can be generous. We need to catch these things. Hard work, honest ownership, excess with contentment, and willing generosity. The greedy, they try to get ahead on someone else's hard work, on someone else's excess, and sometimes other people's not excess, their lack. 
And God's like, listen, this is not the way the people of God do it. Let it be said of every follower of Christ that we work hard. Let it be said of all of us that we actually own stuff. We steward this well. Let it be said of us, actually, that we don't just own stuff, but we have more than we need because we're not living unwisely in a a debt cycle. And let it be said of us that we are the most generous people around. Let it be said of us that we have excess so that we can give away. This is actually the standard of how God's people are supposed to be handling their stuff. And guess what happens when you work hard, when you own stuff, when you are content with excess and you're generous? The desire for, to, to steal and to be greedy is mitigated. It's actually powerful. One of the best ways to prevent a child from being a thief is to give a child something to own. Because when you own something, you begin to understand the value of ownership. And the value of ownership is actually a biblical value that God wants every one of us to have. This is different, by the way. This is different than any other nation that had ever existed up to this point in human history. And God is creating, by the way, the foundations for Western culture and a Judeo-Christian worldview of personal property ownership through these commandments. All right, so what? I want to give you three so what's, and they're all going to be fairly different, so we're going to get a little bit of a head jerk here. Here's the first one. I want to talk to moms and dads, grandmas, grandpas, anybody who's mentoring somebody uh, who is younger. Be, raise, and celebrate hard workers. I, for the life of me, don't understand why parents don't teach their kids to clean their rooms or to take care of their stuff or to work or to do basic human things. I don't get it. We have a responsibility for those who grew up in our home to teach them how to work hard. Why? Because we are killing the thieves' heart that is inside of every one of our children and us as well. And then what we teach them to do with their hard work is actually to own something, to be responsible for it. We teach them to save, and then we teach them to be generous. This fourfold rhythm from Ephesians 4.28, it is a powerful thing, and I want to look at every mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and grandpa and anybody raising a child in your home, okay? Have you taught your children to work hard? By the way, it's not a lesson they hear one time. It is a rhythm that you put into their life. Now, am I telling you to be slave masters with them? No, in fact, the people of Israel under the leadership of Yahweh were loved, were cared for, they rested, priorities were put into place. They were not treated like slaves, but they were treated like sons and daughters. But I want to look at every mom, every dad and say, listen, it's time. It's time to teach our children how to work, how to make money and handle it, how to save and how to be unbelievably generous. And in this process, we kill the thieving heart in our kids. Uh, I want to share with you a second. So what? Now we're going to go in a completely different direction. I do not get political very often, but I have zero hesitation saying this. Reject communism in all of its forms and fashions. Reject it. Teach your children anything that smells of it is not from the Lord because there are systems put into place that will ruin entire cultures and nations. Any system of government that prevents personal ownership of property and personal freedom is not from the Lord. 
any political system that mitigates or lessens a strong work ethic for all, the ability to move up for all, and generosity from all is to be rejected or at least massively reevaluated. Now, I want to say this. I'm not saying this because Christians are Republicans or Democrats. I'm only saying this because God values personal ownership. And there are systems of government right now in the world controlling billions of people that are preventing them from any level of personal ownership or responsibility and therefore generosity. And this is not the way the Lord would have it. This is the way Egypt would run, by the way, but it is not the way the people of God would run. They would actually set apart a nation where people were free, where people could own stuff, people could choose generosity. Yes, there were taxes. Yes, there was war. Yes, there were difficulties. But foreigners and sojourners could come in and and, and you see a very different nation unlike anything the world had ever, ever seen. And so we have, I think, a responsibility to be very clear-headed about political systems that mitigate things that God personally values. Number three, we'll talk to thieves. I know I'm talking actually probably to some degree to everybody in the room when I say this. But I want to talk to those of you who are maybe right now you're, you are really sensing from the Holy Spirit that there has been theft in your life. It might be to the government. It might be to a friend, to your mom and dad. It might have been this moment where your mom and dad gave you $20. You went to the mall and you lied about the excess cash and you kept it for yourself and spent it later on yourself. Maybe it's that. Maybe you just outright stole from somebody. Maybe you went to your brother or your sister and you stole the money. And maybe it was a year or two ago. And, and it's just this thought that lingers in your brain. Have you ever had those things that you did a long time ago? But every once in a while, especially when you're praying or your mind is quiet, the Lord brings it up and you're like, like whatever that thing is, it's just not quite resolved. Did you know what I'm talking about? Nobody's shaking their head. So I, I have that thing, by the way. <laughs> and, and whenever that comes up, the response is always like, we got to do something about this. And I want to say this again. Thankfully, the punishment under Old Covenant law for stealing was not death unless you kidnapped somebody or trafficked another person. So let's look at some common ways that we steal. Stealing stuff. This could be money. It could be a thing. Have you taken a thing that is not yours without someone else's permission? Here's another one. Stealing content, whether it's plagiarism or digital content taking something that actually reduces compensation for someone else. Back in, um, I know this is still an issue, but during college in like 99, 2000, 2001, um, do you remember all the, uh, all the software that would come up and they would allow you to rip anything you wanted from anywhere in the world. You'd get all the music and movies you ever wanted for free. Do you remember that? And then it would put viruses into your computer and then make nothing work for a very long time. Like if this were then, I would look at you and I would say, hey, have you burned music that you're not supposed to burn, right? Where did you get that CD where the name on the front of the CD is written in marker, right? That was a classic sign that you burned something that you shouldn't have burned. It was illegal music or it was a game or it was a movie. There are different ways to steal content now. And, and maybe you know you've built actually an entire entertainment system around your life that is rooted in the theft of content. Here's one, stealing money through time, taking money from an employer that you did not earn honestly. Maybe you know this. Maybe you know that you might have clocked 30 hours but only worked 20 or 25. Maybe you assigned 
funds to yourself that you know nobody would double check, but they're actually not for you. Stealing through vandalism, reducing the value of someone else's property. Stealing, now this is interesting and I'll let you debate this, but stealing from God by not tithing, that's what the book of Malachi says. In fact, the old covenant law says if you withhold the things from God, you're stealing from God. And so this seems to be an Old Testament principle that there is a financial obligation that people have to the Lord and withholding that from him, the Old Testament calls stealing from him. What I, what I appreciate about the Old Testament, I do appreciate that death is not the penalty for theft, right? Amen from anyone there? But there is, there is something that the Old Covenant Israelite, and I believe this is very applicable for us today, uh, there is something they were responsible to do, and it was what's called restitution. So here's how restitution laws worked. If you robbed somebody you would pay them back what you robbed plus one-fifth. Like that was the rule. Now, you can tell this is a different culture than ours. If you stole an ox and the ox could not be returned, you have to pay them back five oxen. If you stole a sheep, but the sheep couldn't be returned, maybe it died, maybe you sold it, you have to return four sheep. Don't you love how specific they are? Because God already knows. I already know how you're going to do this. I already know like all the logistical sub-laws I have to make here. If you stole an animal, but the animal is returned, you have to pay back twofold. So you had to repay with the animal and another animal in the same way. These are restitution laws. Now, why restitution laws in Israel? I'm going to tell you why. Because when money is stolen from the wise, and this is the assumption, by the way, for the people of God, When money is stolen from the wise, it is never simply the money that is lost. It is the money and the investments the wise would have made that are not paid back. Restitution laws are written out of the assumption that whenever something is stolen, it is never the thing that is stolen. It is the thing plus the investment because that is how the wise people of God handle their money. The wise in Israel would take their money and use it in a way that it made money for itself. They were smart. Remember Clark? My enemy. Let's up one four. In case you forgot, and it was a long time ago. Sophomore year of college, um, I transferred out of Michigan State, and I was going to college for one semester in Colorado Springs. And it was a very, very long drive from Detroit, Michigan, just me, myself, in the car, and my CDs. And something really interesting happened on the trip. Um, there were three really, really important things that the Lord brought um, to deep conviction, to the point where I could no longer just handle it. There were three people that I had wronged, and I knew that before I got to Colorado Springs, I needed to make each one of these things right. Here's the problem. This is before um, really cell phones were everywhere. This is before Facebook. This is before all of that. So I had two other people, one of whom I had their phone number. And so I stopped in Nebraska and I made a phone call to a person to apologize and ask to meet up with them when I got into Colorado because they lived in Colorado. 
Um, another one, um, I emailed a friend asking them for their email address. That was like the best way I could find contact because they had moved, but I knew a guy who knew them. Uh, the third one was Clark. Um, thankfully, um, I, my family and Clark's family have some sort of relationship, and I knew people who knew Clark. Clark was still in the area, and so I got Clark's email address. I showed up in Colorado, and I asked my friend, could I use your computer? I went on, and I emailed Clark, and I just said, hey, listen, when we were 16, I stole Led Zeppelin for this. This probably to him was the dumbest email he has ever received. Like, really? You are, you are a sophomore in college, uh, at that time, by the way, we were freshmen in high school because I had my driver's license when I was a freshman in high school. Different story, okay? So I was young when I was 16, or I was young in school. And this is, this is years prior. And he gets this email, and I don't actually remember what the email says. I actually went to try to find it, but it was at my Hotmail account, which apparently is all deleted now. So if you know how to like recover Hotmail accounts, please let me know. I'd love to figure that out. But it was something like, hey, man, I'm driving, and I feel really convicted um, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. I lied, I deceived, and I love your address because I would love to send you the album back. Now, I wasn't thinking restitution. I was actually just thinking coming clean in the moment. And uh, on the other hand, I was kind of hoping, I'm like, he hated the album anyway, so I'm hoping <laughs> like, to, him, to go buy another one and mail it to him, and that's weird. And, and, um, and he just responded back like, hey, bro, no big deal, like literally years ago, water under the bridge. And, and it was one of those moments where when I got to Colorado, um, Within about a week, I was able to make right all three circumstances, and it was like a billion pounds was lifted off my soul. And I remember that was a moment where I made a commitment to the Lord, which I haven't always followed, but I think I've tried to, which is, Lord, I do not want to let stuff linger. If your spirit prompts me, I want to deal with it. Because what I've learned is that the spirit of Lord just can torment me. And sometimes he can wait years. Like why is it I did something at 16 and he waited until I was 20 years old to bring this level of conviction? I don't know when the Lord is gonna bring that kind of conviction, but the moment the Lord brings something to your heart and to your mind, when is the time to deal with it? Now. The spirit is unrelenting. The spirit wants your Christ-likeness, the clearing of your conscience, and so here, here's what I have personally found, and I'll just, I'll share this with you. Um, as, a, as a pastor, something I am guilty of is I want you to think I'm godly. Fair enough? Um, I want you to think I'm a good person. So when I do bad things, there is this thing in my brain that says, what will they think of me? And then I can find a thousand ways to justify not owning something. But here's what I know about most of you. Most of you want to be seen as godly also, correct? You want your wife to look up to you. You want your husband to look up to you. You want your parents to respect you. You want your children to look up to you. you, know what I mean? you there's this thing in us that we want people to think highly of us. And we fear that if I tell them, how could they ever forgive me? Well, here's the secret. I have never owned something big or small and had eventually it not work out okay. Has it crushed some people? For sure. Have I hurt people through what I've done? 100%. Have I had conversations with people who have hurt me and apologized to me and there have been tears? Absolutely. But the Lord does something so powerful through it. 
most of us, we're not talking huge issues right now. For most of us, it's little ridiculous things. We're not talking, even for most people, there are these lifelong sin issues, right? For most of you, it's going to be something really simple. I've shared this story, but I want to share it again. Um, many years ago, I was um, working for a church, and uh, the pastor called me into his office from down the hallway. I came into the office, and I said, hey, what's up? And he says, um, one sentence, very simple. I said, okay, cool, got it. I walk out. He calls me back in and says, Michael, come back over here. And I said, what's going on? And he said, I just lied to you. And I was like, why? And he goes, I have no idea. But I just, I did it. It just happened. I want to just apologize. I'm going to let you know I'm sorry. And I was like, you're awesome. I'm inspired. My respect for you went up, right? Because I'm no better. I've lied. Have you lied? If you shake your hand, head no, like, come on. <laughs> Sometime in your life, like, really, you know? I'll ask your mom and dad, okay, fine. Most people understand and what I, what I find is that, yes, there are sometimes these huge things that just like, they're like weights on our souls. But I found for a lot of people, it's these little tiny things that if you confess it, you will be met with an unusual amount of grace. And yeah, there might be a trust break for a time, but it can be rebuilt. And, and if it's something big that is actually a relational violation, yeah, get some advice, get some counsel. Let's be very, very wise with how we go about it. But honestly, that's really probably not for most of you what I'm talking about right now. For most of you, it's these little, tiny, quiet things. And the Spirit's like, get it off your chest. It's time. It's time. It's time to face it. And I've got really, really good news for everyone in this room. I can't control how people respond to you, but I can tell you this. The blood of Jesus Christ covers the thief. The thief who placed their faith in Jesus Christ is forgiven, is cleansed, and there is no condemnation before God for you. Have you trusted in Jesus today? And if you have, I, would, I just want to tell you, you go boldly before the throne of grace and you ask him for wisdom in terms of next steps and how to actually make your theft right, okay? But God is gracious and has forgiven you. Some of you are here and you, you are a thief and you know it and you have never personally trusted in Jesus Christ. Yes, there are some relationships that you need to address, but the most foundational, important relationship for you is your relationship with God. And I wanna just challenge you right now. If you've never trusted in Jesus, the blood of Christ is powerful enough to cover whatever thievery you have committed. In fact, if it's worse than that, there is no sin. There is no darkness. The blood of Christ is not powerful enough to cover. And so if that's a decision that you want to make today to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time, I want to encourage you, find somebody that you know who loves God, whether it's me, somebody up here, a friend of yours who brought you to church, and, and make your relationship with God right today. The greatest day in the world to place your faith in Jesus is today, always. And if you don't know how to take a next step, maybe the Holy Spirit is putting something on your heart, especially as it regards to stealing and being a thief, and you need some help, first of all, go to God. Second of all, get some good, godly, wise advice for how to take these next steps and begin to make right and clear your conscience so you can be free.
Uh, I'm gonna take a moment, I wanna pray for you and we're gonna close our service and worship to God. And uh, I, I just wanna encourage you here. Um, the Lord, the blood of Christ has covered you. And even if you are convicted right now, when we stand together to sing, if you've trusted in Christ, sing boldly and loudly because the blood of Christ covers you and you have access to God despite your failures. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, come before you and we just recognize that in this room are so many consciences that need to be cleaned. They need to be cleared. And there is an incredible amount of fear. I know that personally. I remember hitting send on that email to Clark. I remember talking to my friends. I can think about multiple times in my life where I've just had to own something I am not proud of. And I know every time I've done it, I am petrified of the consequences. Lord, most of the circumstances in this room are simple and small, and although they plague our hearts and minds. Lord, for those who have maybe bigger circumstances, and would you... Um, would you give them wisdom and would you provide counsel for them to help them take maybe a right next step? But Lord, as we, as we come to close to the end of the service, I wanna just take a moment and say thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity. Thank you for the positive values. Thank you for what you did through the nation of Israel and how literally this Judeo-Christian ethic has changed the entire world. Most of all, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ on the cross that allows us, thieves like every one of us in this room, to be cleansed before you, forgiven, and to worship you and to be redeemed. So we love you. We thank you. We are grateful. Spirit, do what only you can do. And now we worship you and we do this with joy because of the shed blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and close our service as we lift our voices to the Lord.